This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. Thanks for tuning in. Today's episode has been carefully curated from the Top of Mind archive, and there's a lot to choose from. We've been going in-depth with guests on the air every weekday since 2015, searching for new perspectives and ideas. I hope what you hear today makes you think about your world a little differently and sparks satisfying new conversations with the people in your life. Let's dive in. The so-called Doomsday Vault in a frozen mountain near the North Pole houses seed samples from every plant we would need to feed ourselves in the event of a major catastrophe that wiped out global crop production. But what if that catastrophe also wiped out the Doomsday Vault? University of Arizona engineers have hatched a backup to the backup plan that would send samples of both plants and animals into space for safekeeping. Aerospace engineering professor Jehan Tanga joins me now from the University of Arizona to talk about this idea, which they are calling the lunar arc, as in Noah's Ark. Professor Tanga, welcome. Thank you. So lunar, meaning putting these samples on the moon in in, in a specific place on the moon? Uh, yes, this would be in uh, lavatubes. Um, there are approximately 200 such lavatubes. Uh, located underneath the moon. Lava, like from These hot are lava? They were about 80 to 100 meters. Okay, 80 to 100 meters underground, tubes made by flowing lava that stopped flowing. Is that right? That's correct. Okay. Um, the moon was volcanically active um, about 4 billion years ago and has since cooled. And so it's... Um, been pristine ever since. Okay. And how big are these tubes? Could a person stand up in them? Uh, definitely. They're a lot bigger than uh, ones that we find on Earth. They're approximated to be about 100 meters in diameter, uh, maybe even more, uh, sometimes even, you know, being able to fit a, a small city inside. Oh, wow. Um, okay. And they're 80 to 100 meters below the surface of the moon. But the moon has a really harsh environment, doesn't it? There's no atmosphere to protect from the radiation from the sun, for example. I thought I thought it would be a rough place for any kind of living cell to survive. That's that's correct. And and luck, uh, luckily, these uh, underground lava tubes on the moon are, are a great sanctuary because uh, they shield uh, away from them uh, temperature swings that happen on the surface of the moon. So on the, on the surface of the moon, you can get to temperatures of 120 to 150 degrees centigrade uh, during daytime and, and nearly uh, minus 120 to minus 150 in the nighttime. <laughs> and, and the lunar day is uh, 12 days and the lunar night is another uh, 12 continuous days after that. Whoa. So um, it's really, I mean, it's like 300 degrees Fahrenheit during the daytime and then it's like minus 300 at night. For days on end. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So surface of the moon, not so great. But what's it, what's it like down inside the lava tubes? In the lava tubes, it's uh, minus 25 degrees centigrade constant. And it has been like that for uh, billions of years now. Okay. Um, and radiation? one is, advantage. Is the radiation not a problem? Radiation, down... uh, it's shielded. Hmm. Okay. It's below uh, nearly 80 80 to 100 meters of rock, and so that provides it enough shielding from both intense solar radiation and cosmic radiation. Now, is it cold enough down in the lava tubes then to preserve seeds, for example, plant seeds, uh, for a very long time? That, that's correct. Um, so the Salvabad uh, seed vault in Norway stores the seeds at minus 18 degrees centigrade, while uh, this, these lava tubes would hold it at minus 25. Okay. So the temperature difference is not so bad. We would need to warm up the seeds a bit, but that's uh, definitely one possibility. Okay. Now, if we're gonna go towards cryopreservation, which is to uh, store both animals and plants and, and seeds for long periods of time, we're talking uh, you know many decades, if not hundreds of years, then the temperatures need to be about minus 180 degrees centigrade to minus 196 degrees centigrade. And so that requires a lot more refrigeration. Capability. Okay, and, and that's the idea that you're that you're working on with, by the way, with some funding from NASA. Um, 
which we'll talk about in just a moment. Um, how are you going? How do you preserve animals in cry? You're sending up actually like cryogenically frozen wolves and whales. <laughs> so our the easiest way we could do that is by sending their uh, sperms and eggs, oh. uh, as opposed to sending the entire animal or sending the entire you know sort of zoo or ecosystem in in, uh, in mass. <laughs> okay. Um, and so this happens to be the best form of packaging. Uh, they're they're in this uh, you know tiny state. They're uh, kept at these cryogenic temperatures, and and uh, according to you know the latest science in, in cryogenics, we can you know keep these creatures uh, preserved for long periods of time. Hmm. Um, okay. So, how, but how would you re- refrigerate the vault in one of these lunar tubes if you have to make it a lot colder than it is naturally? So we need to provide external power for this, and and that's where you know we went to the engineering design of things to design a base that would have refrigerators that would be powered using uh, solar power which would be located on the surface of the moon, and that would receive that power during those 12 days of daytime uh, while keeping the entire thing uh, refrigerated during both days and nights. Okay. Would you need humans there all the time to monitor the laboratory and operate it? We ideally envision for the space to be without humans, so it's robotically operated, hmm. uh, much like a modern uh, robotically operated library. Um, and having the ro- humans there would, uh, in fact, um, make the base way more complex. Oh, because well, I guess robots don't necessarily need oxygen or um, waste facilities or <laughs> food. But do can robots function in such cold temperatures? And uh, that's an uh, area that we're still working on. Um, there are um, new physics principles that we can exploit to operate in those cold temperatures, which lets you, you know, do all kinds of cool things, uh, be able to move things without actually having, uh, touching them or, or, or making contact with them. Um, it's, it's this whole uh, principle of quantum uh, levitation. Uh, we have demonstrated in the laboratory, uh, you know, it's, it's widely understood, but, but it, it of course needs to be sort of applied to robotics to to sort of operate under these cold temperatures. Quantum levitation. That's sounds very cool and very sci-fi. Would the would the weightless weightlessness though, the lack of gravity or the much lower gravity on the moon be a problem for the biological materials for these cells, the sperms and eggs and seeds? For our base design, we are uh, making both considerations. One consideration with the seeds uh, are impacted by uh, the, lunar, the low lunar gravity and one in which they're not. If they are impacted by lunar gravity, uh, our designs would also include a centrifuge in them. Uh, so the centrifuge would spin, producing an artificial uh, centrifugal force that uh, simulates gravity. <laughs> so the whole lab would be spinning like a top, uh, or at least the containers that the seeds and uh, samples would be in. And how many? Right. Sorry, Think of it as if it's like a concrete uh, mixer mm. truck that's on the road. Um, you know, uh, concrete for different reasons need to be spun. Um, if you were to, you know, sort of let it set, it, it becomes a hot as rock. Now, Professor Tenga, I mentioned that NASA provided a grant for the work, this planning work that you and your colleagues are doing. Is is NASA seriously pursuing this or is it just sort of an interesting idea that they asked you to look into? So um, this grant that we have uh, utilized from NASA is, is really a seed grant um, in which uh, we are you know, proposing all kinds of uh, new ideas for utilization uh, of the moon or or space hmm. uh, for for the benefit of mankind, um, and and so this happens to be in one of those categories. Okay, but why why would it be worth the expense? I mean, it's it, it's something you could do with the moon's lun- lava tubes, but 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 wouldn't it be more financially um, reasonable and accessible to just create a bunch more of these doomsday vaults here on Earth? So you wouldn't have to get in a spaceship in order to go up there and troubleshoot it. Uh, so two things. Getting from Earth to the moon to these uh, these lava tubes only takes about four days. And, and that's not so bad. 
Yeah, but uh, on a on a on a space shuttle instead of in a on a bus. I mean, it's a lot more expensive. Right. right. Uh, no doubt. Now, Earth, on the other hand, um, you know, faces quite a lot of cataclysms. Is quite a uh, you know very dynamic environment, mm. and uh, you know, life on Earth could sort of in, in in sort of the most drastic way possible end at any minute, so to speak. Um, that's that's the to- types of cataclysms that we've learned about in the past. Like what? What what would be a cataclysm like that? That that um, of that scale um, is a, a comet or a, or an asteroid impact. Mm. Um, and 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 a comet or asteroid you know doesn't have to be you know that big. Uh, it needs to be about five kilometers in size to okay. make that. <laughs> and that happened 65 million years ago. Yeah. That's what wiped out the dinosaurs. Um, that caused, uh, you know, major reformation of Earth and, and, and literally, you know, wipe out of, of all the existing life, um, followed by sort of this continuous winter for perhaps thousands of years and, and starvation and, and, and death, of course. Um, so, so that's a, you know, that's a major event that happens perhaps every, uh, you know, 50 million years or so. Uh, but there are, there are even uh, shorter events which... Uh, supposedly came close to uh, wiping out humans. And that was about 75,000 years ago. And that was the Toba supervolcanic eruption. So the hope would be if you've got this vault of plants and animals on the moon, cryogenically preserved for who knows how long, then hopefully there's a human that survives whatever cataclysm on Earth and has the ability to get to the moon and bring back the stuff so that we could plant it here and start fresh. Well, we envision something perhaps a little bit better than that. I okay. Think. And and that is, um, as part of the base on the moon, there would be a logistics base, a transport uh, system to bring it back to Earth on on demand. Oh. And it turns out like a little elevator um, or a uh, like one of those chutes at the at the bank when you go through the drive-through. Right. Okay. Um, so it turns out that. Um, the energy needed uh, to go from uh, Earth to the moon is a lot more expensive than the return trip. Hmm. In fact, the return trip could be made for free. Uh, in other words, from a fuel cost point of view. Okay. So there um, would be there so, would be an, an Amazon delivery service that would bring back those 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 uh, um, that that someone could trigger on Earth and get those those samples back. Yes, that's that's correct. We would still uh, you know that could be done robotically. It could be done as first steps to sort of do that restore. But of course, the longer term restore process is going to take, you know, hundreds of years. Right. Uh, and, and, and for that, we would need human survivors on the moon. Yeah. To continue the process. Well, it's a cool idea. I do hope we never need it. But good luck with your research, Professor Tenga. I really appreciate you taking time today. Thank you. Jehan Tanga is a professor of aerospace and mechanical engineering at the University of Arizona, working on a concept for a lunar arc. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. More great conversations from the Top of Mind archive are coming up. This is Top of Mind. Today we've collected some of our favorite interviews from past years. Thanks for listening. Emory University Yiddish professor Miriam Udell has just published a collection of children's stories and poems that she has translated from Yiddish. The book is called Honey on the Page, and she's with me now. Professor Udell, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Julie. Is Yiddish still a language that people speak, like as their primary means of communication? It is. There are uh, approaching a million. We don't know exactly how many Hasidic Jews for whom Yiddish is their everyday language. And there is also still a large number, not quite as large, um, of enthusiasts who most of whom are Jewish, not all of whom are Jewish, who study the language, who read its literature, who watch Yiddish theater and listen to klezmer music, um, who really hold Yiddish as something very dear to their hearts. What do you think of the uh, of the depiction that we've seen in like American comedy sitcoms like Seinfeld, right, where we mostly hear Yiddish used to in, in a particularly <laughs> descriptive way, right, or as a as a, like a oy vey kind of a situation, right? So 
as I'm sure your listeners can imagine, um, anytime that you take an entire language and the civilization that it carries and reduce it to a punchline, something very large is being made very small. So I, I do bristle at that, even though I enjoy Seinfeld and I enjoy a good joke as much as, as anybody else. But I really wanted to find opportunities to show the richness and multidimensionality of Yiddish culture through its own authentic material. Is Yiddish a, a hybrid of something? Absolutely. It's a fusion language. It is a mostly Germanic vocabulary that was fused together with some Hebrew elements, some Slavic elements from Russian and Polish, a very small but very old stratum of romance language vocabulary. And then when it gets written down, the whole thing is written down in Hebrew characters. Now, the stories that you have translated and collected in this book, Honey on the Page, come from a a specific maybe 50 to 75 year span, right? That that seems to have been like the golden age of Yiddish literature. (laughs) What what was what is that time period and what was going on then? (laughs) Sure. So so broadly, the golden age of modern Yiddish literature stretches from the 1860s, but it, it took a while for the idea of writing for children specifically to catch on. And that's something that really only gets started at the turn of the 20th century and comes into its flourishing in the 1920s and 30s. And it was really an outgrowth of the development of Yiddish school systems. In Europe, those were full day schools. And in the United States and other parts of North America, they tended to be after schools so that a child would go to public school all morning. And then for a couple of hours in the afternoon, their parents would torture them by sending them to a Yiddish after school where they would speak Yiddish, read Yiddish, and encounter the stories that I've translated in Honey on the Page. So what was happening in the 1920s that um, caused such a such an intense focus or interest in, in Yiddish and in teaching it to children? Well, two things. One is that there was a lot of political passion being channeled into very specific actions. Um, The creation of the labor movement, of voluntary and fraternal organizations that tried to take care of their members through not only things like collective bargaining and um, healthcare collectives, but also seeing to the cultural needs of their membership, including education and all kinds of cultural programming for both adults and children. And the other thing that was going on was that there was a lot of linguistic and cultural assimilation that started to happen very rapidly as Jewish immigrants Americanized very quickly. Mm. And the cultural leaders um, of the Yiddish world kind of looked around and said, if we don't do something, if we don't make a really significant intervention, our children and their children are not going to be Yiddish speakers. And if this is something that we want to preserve and protect, we need to start speaking to these children directly in a way that's going to feel lively and relevant and compelling for them. Why Why was it something that they considered important to protect? Like what's, what's lost if you have future generations that don't speak Yiddish? They're, they're still Jewish. They can still understand the scripture. That That is true. But there was a whole culture that arose alongside and in some cases after Jewish religious civilization. And that culture was really encoded in Yiddish. And I I actually write a a full introduction for adults in the book, but a much briefer one for children. And one of the things that I say to young readers of the book is that language is a way of carrying a civilization with you. And they didn't want that whole civilization to be lost. Miriam Udell, tell us about one of these writers um, who you've translated in this book. Sure. So um, 
one of the things that I wanted to reflect in the book was the incredible diversity of, of these writers so that they had different political ideologies, they lived in different places, they had different occupations. Some of them were, um, were authors as their, their primary form of work and they wrote a little something for children and mostly for adults. Others were educators who were with children day in, day out. And so one that I would like to highlight is actually the author of the first selection in the anthology, Janke Fichmann, who wrote A Sabbath in the Forest. He was born in 1881 to a family uh, where the father was a dairyman, and they, they lived in Bessarabia in a pretty rural area. And he had a very traditional sort of rudimentary Jewish elementary education in an informal setting. And then as a teenager, he made his way into the world and he wandered around and worked at all kinds of odd jobs. He was a baker, a waiter, a coachman, a porter. He even worked for a traveling organ grinder. And over this period of time of the kind of school of hard knocks, he taught himself Russian and German, and he started writing poetry. And then he wanted to go where all of the um, Yiddish and Hebrew poets and authors, participants in high culture were hanging out, which at that time was Odessa, Russia. And so he, he did, and he became a Zionist, and he emigrated to the land of Israel, which at that time was called Palestine. And he kind of moved back and forth between Palestine and Europe um, over many years of his life before finally settling in Israel after statehood was, was declared. And he's mostly remembered for the writing that he did in Hebrew and as being the father of the Hebrew lullaby, but he also wrote for children in Yiddish, including this really beautiful story about a simple tailor who's trying to make his way home for the Sabbath and ends up spending, getting caught in a blizzard and spending the entire Sabbath in the forest. Okay, so so it talks, I mean, there are religious undertones because it's talking about the religious um, observance of the Sabbath, right? But but you right. mentioned also that, that Yiddish, distinct from Hebrew, that Hebrew is the language of Jewish religion, right? And that, that Yiddish is, is, is a cultural side to Judaism, to, to Jewish identity. But do a lot of these stories then for children, are they religious tales or are they secular tales about how to, you know— how to, how to live as a Jew? How, how would you describe the the themes that run through these Jew, Jewish, uh, ch these Yiddish children's tales? So the answer, Julie, is all of the above. Um, the book starts out with the most distinctively Jewish material about Jewish holidays, history, and heroes. And it often has a kind of modern or secular take on traditional Jewish holidays. And then the book moves into a more universal, sometimes more secular domain, the kinds of stories that we expect to see parallels to in other kinds of, of cultures and their literature. So folk tales, fairy tales, wonder tales, tales about fools and all of their, their foolish exploits, allegories and parables. And then I end on a really universal note with the idea of um, children going to school and the learning that we do outside of school and the most universal experience of all, which is belonging to a family. Um, okay, so so really the thing that all these stories have in common is that they were originally written in Yiddish. <laughs> but that's about yeah, that's it then. <laughs> well, they, they are... I mean, is there, there a worldview that they um, that they seem to embrace or that you find in common? There, there is a worldview. So they're part of a of a project that understood itself to be broadly oriented toward the left politically, and what that meant was that some of these works were very explicitly political, and others were much more subtle in their 
their ideological sources that they were drawing on, but they all wrote about a system of values that undergirded their political commitments. So values like generosity, solidarity, um, now generosity might take the form of charitable giving. It might take the form of a, a kind of um, sense of, of charity as social justice, as, as bringing about um, basic fairness. And solidarity might take the form of getting together with other workers or a broader sense of fellow feeling for, for just your fellow human being or citizen. And how were these stories being published and distributed uh, to the Jewish diaspora, really, of, of Yiddish speakers? Yeah, so this is where those fraternal organizations and Jewish school systems were really key, because each one of those school systems ended up um, creating its own allied publishing arm and distributing the schools, uh, distributing the stories through its own, its own schools. That's in the United States. Things were a little bit different in the Soviet Union, which is another place where some of these stories were published. There you had much more direct government involvement and adoption of some of these titles and distribution, both in Yiddish and in Russian translation. Hmm. Where else were they being published? There was a lot of publication activity, particularly after World War II and the Holocaust in Latin America. Buenos Aires, Mexico City, Havana, these were all important places where these stories were being written and published. I, I, I want to talk a little bit about how the Holocaust affected J Yiddish literature. First, let me just remind people I'm speaking with Miriam Udell. She's a rabbi and a professor of Yiddish language and literature at Emory University. And she's translated a collection of stories from Yiddish in her new book, which is called Honey on the Page, A Treasury of Yiddish Children's Literature. Let's talk about another story first from the book. Uh, there's a Passover tale in your book called Children of the Field. Uh, is it a would you call it a retelling of the the deliverance story that Passover marks the deliverance of the children of Israel from slavery in Egypt? Yes. So this is a story by the writer Levine Kipnis, and it is actually a retelling and a vast expansion of a of an interpretive tale in the Talmud um, that is itself reinterpreting and expanding upon the biblical story of the Exodus. And so the idea is that um, at the time of, of the book of Exodus, there was, a, there was an order from the Pharaoh, from the Egyptian ruler, to throw all of the baby boys who were born to the Israelites into the Nile River so that the Israelites in Egypt would stop propagating. And as we know, the mother of Moses hid her son for as long as she could and then placed him in a sealed basket of bulrushes um, and placed him lovingly into the Nile River and had his sister Miriam standing by to see what would become of him and to try to intervene, which of course she famously did. But the Talmud is interested not so much in what became of that one baby Moses, but what about the rest of that generation of Israelite boys? And so the Talmudic story posits that there was a, a field of apple trees in the area of Goshen, where the Israelites were confined to, to living by the Egyptians, and that the mothers would bring their newborn baby boys out to that field of apple trees and dig pits, dig protective holes for them, place them into the earth, and commend them to the care of the apple trees. And that then angels would come down from heaven 
and meet the needs of these baby boys to be fed and um, and brushed and cuddled and loved until such time as they could grow up and be redeemed and, and experience the exodus. And so the Yiddish story really builds on this Talmudic retelling um, to, to talk about this period when the children are put into this sort of protective quarantine. Um, so it's a, a story that has a lot of contemporary resonance for us as um, the COVID generation, where, where children are kind of protectively sequestered away until they can be brought safely back into society. Would you share a passage for us from that, that story then, this Passover story? And I'd love to hear just a bit of that in Yiddish before you read the English translation. Sure. Die Eppelbeimer haben Achtung gegeben auf die kleinen Gejingelich, die großen haben sie verborgen und von Himmel seinen herabgeflogen Malachim mit leutere Eugen. Now I'll read in English. The apple trees cared for the tiny little boys. The blades of grass kept them hidden and bright-eyed angels with clear wings flew down from the heavens, an angel for each and every child. They stroked the children's little heads so that their hair grew very long, soft, and silky and covered their whole bodies. They gave every child a pebble in each hand, one a milk stone and the other a honey stone. That's beautiful. Uh, I'm speaking with Miriam Udell, who is a professor of Yiddish and translator of a new uh, collection of Yiddish children's stories called Honey on the Page. And that's a story called Children of the Field, a retelling of the Passover Exodus story or a portion of it. Um, the The Holocaust happens uh, during the period of Yiddish literary um, publication, a gold, this golden age, how, how does that affect right. the stories yeah. that are told? As you can imagine, the Holocaust more than decimates the natural readership for these stories. And the reason that so many of them have been neglected for as long as they have is precisely because so many of the would-be readers were lost. But it does not cease publishing activity for Yiddish-speaking children, what it does do is really redirect it toward the preservation and consolidation of Yiddish culture. So after the Holocaust, we start seeing a lot of holiday story collections where authors really want Jewish children to have a keen sense of what the motifs were, what the stories were that were associated with each of the Jewish holidays. So that's that's one example of, of the kind of um, turn that this literature took after the Holocaust. And of course, the other major task that it had was to reckon with the events of the Holocaust themselves and to try to figure out how to present them to young readers. So we have a range of approaches to that. We have some very realistic stories that acknowledge the level of persecution and victimization of European Jewry, but that also really dwelt on instances of heroism and empowerment. And then we have other stories that are a little bit subtler or more indirect in their approach to the events of the Holocaust. What is the meaning of the title? The, the title of your book is Honey on the Page. There was a custom in the informal schools, elementary schools of Eastern European Jewry that were mostly attended by little boys, uh, where the, the teacher, who was a rabbi, would smear honey on the alphabet primer of each student on the first day of class. And each pupil would lick up that honey from his book in order to make learning sweet. And I love that idea. And I wanted to use this volume as an opportunity to make learning about Yiddish culture and civilization sweet for a new generation of children, whether they're Jewish or not. 
Miriam Udell is a rabbi, a professor of Yiddish language and literature at Emory University and translator of a new collection of Yiddish children's stories. It's called Honey on the Page. Thank you very much for your time today, Professor Udell. I appreciate it. It was a delight to be with you, Julie. Thank you. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. This is a curated episode of Top of Mind from the Archive. Thank you for listening to Top of Mind. I'm Ciara Hewlett. There's a simple screening for people with sickle cell disease that can prevent strokes. But on average, less than half of patients with the disease get this test, which can have devastating consequences. There's also a medication that can help prevent significant effects, but some patients haven't even heard of it. Where's the disconnect? For starters, sickle cell is severely underfunded and understudied compared to similar diseases like cystic fibrosis, even though sickle cell affects more Americans. Dr. Julie Cantor has been looking into this disparity. She is the director of the Adult Sickle Cell Clinic at the University of Alabama, Birmingham, and she joins me on the line now. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. What happens if people with sickle cell don't get the care or the preventative treatment they need? So individuals with sickle cell disease are affected by or or have multiple complications as a result of their disease, and they can occur in various parts of the body. Individuals are not all the same either with sickle cell disease. There are different genotypes depending on which genes are inherited and which of those hemoglobins the genes contain. So, for example, the individuals who are most affected by stroke have sickle cell anemia, or they inherit only hemoglobin S, or sickle hemoglobin, as we call it. This is the group of patients that are most at risk for ischemic stroke, especially in early childhood, although we do still see this ischemic stroke in adulthood. Which would result in brain damage? Correct. So, an ischemic means a lack of blood flow. Whereas you'll also hear hemorrhagic stroke, which is when you think of a brain bleed. In both cases, the brain doesn't get enough blood and oxygen. What would be some of the other consequences of of not getting the correct care? Unfortunately, they're extensive. So we like to say that every individual living with sickle cell disease really needs to see a sickle cell expert. Sickle cell disease can cause kidney failure. It can cause blindness. It can cause bone damage. It can cause heart and lung damage, as well as the most frequent and common presentation of acute, unrelenting pain. There are multiple ways that we can improve outcomes in sickle cell disease, but preventative monitoring is definitely required. Why are patients not getting some of these preventative treatments and monitoring if if they're out there? But um, you found in a study that on average, half of patients aren't getting this really simple, easy test. Why would that be? Really good question. So we looked specifically at this test called a transcranial Doppler, or as we have now renamed it, a sickle stroke screen. This is a non-painful test, an ultrasound, done in children ages 2 to 16 years of age who have sickle cell anemia or only make hemoglobin S. In these individuals, you can undergo this screen, and if it's seen to be abnormal, be started on transfusion therapy. So not exactly a medicine, but chronic transfusions that can prevent stroke and actually prevent it in over 92% of cases. So, so that so it's it's an ultrasound and then it just can see in the brain if there's that that issue and so then then they'll know okay this person is at higher risk for a stroke let's start their transfusions and then that can prevent the actual stroke from happening. It actually detects that that's exactly correct, except it doesn't look at the brain itself, which sometimes confuses um, individuals. It actually detects blood flow in the brain. Oh, okay. And so if the blood flow is irregular, that tells us that the blood vessels are not healthy, which can predispose patients to stroke. Okay. Which, it's so easy and simple, painless. Then why, why aren't they getting it? So we found a couple of different things. Uh, the first was that... Number one, access to care has been a long-standing issue in individuals living with sickle cell disease, and we are certainly a country that should be able to provide this access. 
However, often patients may not make their appointment for various reasons, um, and if they miss their appointments, then they'll often miss the screen. They may not be followed up in a timely manner. Um, in, in some centers, it's hard to keep track of the number of patients. Um, it's very interesting if you look at how medical centers track patients. We rely on the patients to call us. It's not like your oil change, right? Speedy Oil will send you a reminder when your car is due for an oil change. But once you have failed to follow up with a medical center for a certain amount of time, the medical center is unable to remind the provider or the patient to come in. Mm, you fall off the grid. You fall off the grid or lost to follow up. Some diseases like cystic fibrosis, uh, patients with the disease will get assigned uh, a, case, a case manager or somebody to, to help them along. Um, why is that not the case with, with sickle cell? For sickle cell disease, it very much depends on where you're getting treatment. There are phenomenal pediatric providers uh, who specialize in sickle cell disease caring for these individuals, but often we are understaffed and we don't have the sufficient support that we need, social workers, case, case managers, as you mentioned, which can be incredibly helpful at helping make sure that patients come in when they need to, reminding individuals of their appointments, and then helping with transportation, which can be quite a burden. And why? Why is it understaffed? Unfortunately, sickle cell disease has suffered from years of, of underfunding since its inception. So most people don't recognize that we've known about sickle cell since 1910. And it was the first molecular disease actually identified. And yet we've had significant underfunding compared to cystic fibrosis, as you mentioned, but also hemophilia. And there are multiple reasons for this, but it's one of the most underfunded of the rare genetic disorders when you consider how many people are actually affected. And we believe there's a, a number of reasons. One is certainly awareness. Another one is that the community sometimes has trouble mounting the advocacy efforts because many are affected by the disease. And that, of course, can limit how much... Um, what they can do. Exactly, when you're busy being sick. Right. And so only recently have we had three new drugs even um, available to these individuals. In fact, for the last 30 years, there's only been one FDA-approved medication. Wow. It's also a disease that affects more black Americans than anything else. Um, that is correct. Could that be a factor here? We think that there is no question that systemic racism is involved in the management and treatment of individuals with sickle cell disease. Uh, it is in the United States, about 95% of the people affected are black, African-American. Um, less than 5% are Hispanic, um, and very few are Caucasian. And so many affected individuals also live in lower socioeconomic um, categories in which it, improving access to care can also be difficult. Speaking with one voice can be difficult. And really trying to come together as a community can be harder when there's very few resources to do that. And, okay. and very little help. So, so some of it could be subconscious bias, um, some some racism there, there. But then also part of it is just that a lot of these people, these black Americans are living in communities, uh, lower socioeconomic status. And so they just don't have the resources to raise awareness for their own disease as much as um, white people with a different disease that have more money to to just get awareness out there to to raise more money for for uh, research and all of that. I think that's definitely part of it. Another big part is that, unfortunately, as I mentioned before, one of the most common conditions of individuals living with sickle cell disease is horrible acute pain. And these episodes are spontaneous, they're unpredictable, and you can't measure pain with a blood test or an x-ray. And so, unfortunately, often not believed. And that's really increased the stigmatization against the disease and the patients afflicted by it, which is heartbreaking. Hmm. Because you can't measure pain. So if someone comes in, you have to believe them. You have to listen to what they say their pain is. And then if they tell you they know what works best for them, about a third of the emergency department doctors will say, well, if you're asking for Dilaudid, that clearly means you're a drug seeker, as opposed to a knowledgeable patient who knows what's best to treat their pain. I'm speaking with Dr. Julie Cantor. She's a director of the University of Alabama Birmingham's Adult Sickle Cell Clinic. Dr. Cantor, why does sickle cell disease affect more? You said 95% of the people with it are black Americans. Um, why would that be? 
Well, that's actually only in this country. In the United so, States, yes. <laughs> so important, because if you went to, say, Lebanon or um, Kuwait or Oman, where there are a number of affected individuals with sickle cell disease, they would classify as Caucasians, self-classify as Caucasians. So it is a genetic condition. And what is interesting about this disease is that if you have a carrier, if you're a carrier called sickle cell trait, then you are actually more resistant to malaria. So if you live in an endemic area, such as sub-Saharan Africa or India, where there's a lot of malaria, as a carrier, you are actually protected from that malaria. If two carriers have a child together, the risk of having an affected child is 25%. So you can see how that means that some of the areas most indigenous with sickle cell disease are also those where there's a lot of malaria. So there's also a large population of affected individuals in India. Okay. And then from there, it follows migration patterns. And it just happens that as individuals um, came to the United States from sub-Saharan Africa, mostly due to the slave trade, and the disease actually tracks right along the slave trade, um, which can just add more sadness to the way things worked out for these affected individuals. And so they tend more often to have children with other people who are more likely to carry the disease because they're more likely to be black or African-American. Okay, so you just it's just a matter of tracing the ancestry. And if your ancestors came from a place with malaria, then it's possible that you could pass this trait along. Exactly, and making huh. it even more complicated, there's some silent traits that people carry that when combined with the sickle trait can still cause sickle cell disease. And most people are not informed that they carry these silent traits. And so you really have to be diligent about preconception counseling in order to assess for the risk. Oh, so, so you think that if people have ancestry from, from places with malaria, that they should be checking to see if they could be a carrier so that they, so they don't marry somebody that else could be a carrier? Or So it's a really hard question to answer. So everyone in the United States now is tested at birth for sickle cell disease and sickle cell trait. And so these things should be known. However, as you might imagine, most people with sickle cell disease are followed up, but those with sickle cell trait have no actual illness. They're a carrier. So reminding those children when they're born, you know, when they get to child-producing age, of this, state, this trait status is important. The other thing that makes this very hard is the way our insurance laws work in this country and what is allowed and not allowed and what happens if you get this preconception counseling. And then what happens if you are at risk and you want to pursue, for example, in vitro fertilization or something else to mitigate that risk and who's going to pay for it? So what do you think needs to be done to turn things around so that um, we didn't even mention the, the medication as well that a lot of um, people with sickle cell disease don't even have access to or realize is a thing that, that can also help um, mitigate some of the effects? Um, what, what can be done to make it so that um, these people can get better access to the health care that they need? So, you know, that's really my area of research is looking at ways to improve access to care. And we've done a few things to help. So one of those things is we just started a national alliance of sickle cell centers. We did this because you've heard of a cancer center or a stroke center or a diabetes center. But there are no criteria before now that declare what, who you are to be a sickle cell center and what components do you need. For example, if you want to be a sickle cell center, do you have to have a social worker? Do you have to have... Uh, dedicated nurses who've been trained in sickle cell disease. So as a group of us got together, we did a study to determine what we thought were required elements of a sickle cell center. And from there, we're able to recognize centers that we believe should be called sickle cell centers. And our hope is that CMS will work with us to increase paying or increase care delivered in these facilities, with which we can go out, identify patients not unaffiliated, not affiliated, and bring them in to get them the care they need. And it doesn't mean that patients should have to travel. We're actually really intent on trying to use spokes or affiliate clinics so that patients can get care they need either through another provider or by telemedicine in collaboration with another provider to ensure that they're getting all of these different steps. Because even our children who, are, who get more access to care than our adults often have to travel far to get that care. And what we want to do is create a center, a center structure that is better reimbursed so that we can provide ethical care to everyone living with this disease. And would that be because they have to travel far because a lot of these 
mostly black Americans live in poorer communities and that's why they're having to travel? Well, and just that there's not a sufficient number of providers that manage and treat sickle cell disease. And that the the difficulty in being one of these providers, somebody asked me this today, um, we've had three or four recent colleagues leave academic practice to go into the pharmaceutical industry to help develop new medications in sickle cell. And we're incredibly grateful that they're going to do that. But part of the reason they left is that our support system, our ability to manage these patients is so hindered by our lack of of, of um, supportive services, psychologists, social workers, um, you know, well-trained nurses, and the hospitals sometimes, not mine thankfully, are unwilling to provide those, those substantial services because it's not going to make them enough money back. And we have to make this about caring for patients ethically and equitably with excellent quality of care, and that's really the goal of the alliance. And it, it may just be that you live in another city, but there's no sickle cell specialist there. So what can we do as an organization to help train sickle cell providers to be in that center, to help them get the things, the people in place and the business plan in place to create a center and then sustain funding so that patients can get the care they need in those locations? Right. And the key there, though, would be the funding. How, how, how would you even do that? If, if it's so underfunded right now compared to other diseases, what do you even do? Well, one thing we're really hoping is to be as collaborative as possible. So one of our problems in sickle cell disease has been the lack of a national or longitudinal registry. It's one of the ways that cystic fibrosis, for example, has significantly improved care. And so we need to all work together to to put this registry together. And a few of us are, are now doing that as part of the alliance, is using one specific registry that we want everyone to use so that we can look at data, so that we can really say if you're five years of age, you know, are you at risk for having a really bad outcome when you're 25? Because we don't even have enough data that says that. So that's one thing we can do. Another thing that we're trying to do is is raise awareness um, to increase certainly private donor funding of the National Alliance so that we can improve these outcomes, but also so that we can work really closely with CMS because we believe, so most of our patients living with sickle cell disease, um, our children, that's anywhere from 60 to 85% are funded on Medicaid. And if we can work with CMS to really improve their outcome, look at quality metrics and demonstrate that, of course, better care is going to mean less cost in the long run, we'll, we're hoping they will invest in our services as well. Dr. Julie Cantor is the director of the University of Alabama Birmingham's Adult Sickle Cell Clinic. She's also an associate professor of medicine there. Thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Yes, my my pleasure for sure. I'm Ciara Hewlett. This is Top of Mind. Top of Mind is a production of BYU Radio. Ciara Hewlett, Cleon Wall, and Kyle Remond produce the show. Today's episode was curated from Top of Mind's vast archive of past conversations. I hope you enjoyed hearing some of our favorites. You can find more, lots more, from Top of Mind on the free BYU Radio app. I'm Julie Rose. We'll talk soon.